Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today we're going to cover part two of my book, God in the Frontier, The Impact of the 19th Century Burned Over District, and the Psychology of Faith. In part one, I covered a little bit about the history of Christianity and the divisions within Christianity and some of my perspectives on that. I particularly focused on the Protestant Reformation because a lot of Protestant ideals will be focused on in the rest of the book. Today in part two, I'm going to move this story to New York State, which is the stage that is set for the burned over district of the 19th century. And I'm going to focus a little bit on the native people who lived in New York and what happened when the Christians from Europe and from the East Coast colonies started moving into the New York frontier and interacted with them. And before we get into it, I just want to remind you to please consider giving a donation. With any donation, you will receive a copy of whatever preferred writing that I am sharing with you, which has a lot of really interesting pictures, and you don't have to wait for the rest of the series to come out in order to get the rest of the information. So with that, let's get into it. This is part two of God in the Frontier. Please enjoy. Chapter Two. New York, an old land, a new frontier. And the first section is entitled Origins. So now that we have an idea of how many times Christianity has fractured amongst itself before even entering the Americas, I want to focus a little bit in on New York State, which is going to become the backdrop of all these religious awakenings I'm about to talk about. And I want to talk a little bit about the native peoples who lived here before it even became a state. At the time of the American Revolution in 1775, upstate New York largely belonged to the six nations of the Haudenosaunee, commonly referred to as the Iroquois. The bustling international European trading hub of New York City hugged the southeast tip of the vast young state, but traveling just a short distance north up the Hudson River would reveal that this land was not European in origin. The mountains and the forests of the western frontier was home to one of the most powerful Native American alliances in history, likened to that of the Romans and the Greeks. Today, the shape of New York State still roughly outlines the extent of the Haudenosaunee's vast interconnected territory. In my book, I show an image of how closely aligned New York State is to the Haudenosaunee territory. 
Haudenosaunee translates into the people of the Longhouse in recognition of their hallmark joint family wood and bark homes. They used the symbol of the Longhouse to describe their six-nation alliance as it spanned from east to west. In the pine-laden Adirondack Mountains were the keepers of the Eastern Door, the Mohawk Nation, welcoming or defending against those who entered their land from the direction of the Atlantic. The extent of the Haudenosaunee land stretched as far west as the Genesee River, surrounded by gorges and farming valleys, and where the Seneca Nation stood as the keepers of the Western Door. The Oneida and the Cayuga were smaller but powerful nations wedged between the Mohawk and the Seneca, located in an idyllic landscape of glacially carved lakes, fertile valleys, and low tree-covered mountains that famously burst forth with color every autumn. And at the heart of all the other nations was the Onondaga Nation where they played host to all the meetings held by the Haudenosaunee Confederacy along Onondaga Lake in what is today Syracuse, New York. The Onondaga were known as the Keepers of the Fire, symbolizing those who tended to the life-giving heart of the Longhouse, unifying the family. The Sixth Nation, the Tuscarora, were accepted into the Confederacy much later after migrating to New York from North Carolina. Despite the distance of the Tuscarora, the Haudenosaunee considered them kin to the Five Nations, because the Tuscarora spoke a Haudenosaunee dialect and had Haudenosaunee heritage, a testament to the expanse of the lands held by the Haudenosaunee ancestors. Their exodus from North Carolina came when conflict between the Tuscarora and colonial settlers rose to the point of an all-out war, in which the Tuscarora lost. Together, these six nations of the Haudenosaunee comprised of the pinnacle ally to gain during the Revolutionary War. The Haudenosaunee were not strangers to the wars that the white Europeans waged amongst themselves. Barely over a decade prior, they had witnessed and participated in the American theater of a world war between the French and the British. As the French and Indian War began to consume North America, the Haudenosaunee had to choose between these two groups or remain neutral. And the decision wasn't easy. To choose one side invited hostilities from the other, potentially putting their family and community at risk. But to remain neutral almost guaranteed hostilities from both sides without the rewards usually given to those who joined by choice. And even if they accepted and picked the winning side, they often still lost. They lost loved ones who fought or were attacked by the other side. But even more, they lost because regardless of who won, the constant influx of colonists and European immigrants were only increasing by the day, a problem that would ultimately become insurmountable to all native nations. By the end of the 18th century, there was a new contender in the arena for control. This time, the colonists of Britain were rebelling against their government. And once again, natives up and down the eastern portion of the United States had to choose a side. 
The stress of European encroachment was omnipresent for the native people of America. For many, the ideal preference was for the Europeans to leave just as suddenly as they came. The ways of these foreign white people were different than that of the natives. Their notions of property and respect were in many ways completely alien. The Europeans made baseless claims on the land that native peoples had been living on for so long that the fog of time obscured their origin. Europeans and their colonists often referred to natives as savages, dehumanizing them while simultaneously making solemn agreements that they repeatedly broke. There was a systematic effort to defraud the natives and their treaties, first by the European nations and later by the United States. Simultaneously, these often unwelcome European immigrants claimed to have knowledge of the origin of the universe, a single deity controlling all things, and that they, not the natives of the Americas, had the one true way to live. But the Native Americans were different from Europeans and their colonists spiritually. In the case of the Haudenosaunee, the people were polytheistic and believed in gods of the heavens, good and evil, natural forces, and looked for meaning in dreams and death. They believed in a variety of supernatural beings, including leprechaun-type creatures, fairies, giants, and ghosts, among other unseen beings. Often, things Europeans and Americans still believed in themselves, but avoided such uncouth conversation about at church. The Haudenosaunee had a relationship with nature that was much closer than those who worshipped Christianity. They felt that they could speak to nature in its myriad forms as if it could listen and had its own inherent power that they called orenda. Orenda could be found in all things, a rock, a tomahawk, an animal, or a person. And things and people could be strengthened by being associated with things that contained powerful orenda. All living beings had immortal souls, where Christianity was primarily focused on the souls of humankind. Unlike with Christianity, sin was an indelible and unforgivable mark on the soul that could not be saved. And while the Haudenosaunee saw the spirit of life and honor in all things, the Europeans came with a religion that dehumanized non-Christians and marginally thought about the plants and the animals of nature. Central to the beliefs, ceremonies, and celebrations of the Haudenosaunee was giving thanks to the gods for all their gifts to humanity, wherein sins were encouraged to be confessed so promises of restitution could be made. In this way, sins were to be forgiven or made right by other people, while it was left to the gods to never forget. It's these deities who knew a person's cumulative impact on the earth while people worked to forgive one another. Festivals adorned each season for centuries, long into the Haudenosaunee past, celebrating the offerings of the natural world. The Haudenosaunee were a powerful, insightful, and honor-bound people with unrivaled skills in negotiation and oration. But they were also a conquering people. 
that caused suffering to their unallied neighbors. The Haudenosaunee defeated each of their neighbors ruthlessly one by one. The Mohicans, the Huron, the Wenranen, the Neutral, the Erie, and others. Despite the suffering that they committed through conquest, the prisoners they captured never became slaves, but instead were adopted into the Haudenosaunee clans, given a second life and treated as one of their own. But as the Revolutionary War came around, the Haudenosaunee were now surrounded on all sides by the British and their American offspring and the influence of Christianity began spreading among the Haudenosaunee, both Catholicism and variations of Protestantism, depending on the clans and the nations each belonged to. When it came time to choose a side in the Revolutionary War, the natural choice for the Haudenosaunee was Britain, having successfully been allied together in the past. This all but became guaranteed when American colonists began to burn Mohawk homes without provocation near the start of the war. The Onondaga, Cayuga, Seneca, and Mohawk all agreed to side with the British. But the Revolutionary War did not just cleave the American colonies from their British master. It also was the catalyst that turned the Haudenosaunee alliance against itself. The Oneida and the Tuscarora would not join the other four nations in supporting the British in the war, choosing to remain neutral instead. This naturally created friction between the Haudenosaunee allied with the British and those who remained neutral. One Christian Mohawk leader, Joseph Brandt, had just returned from a visit with the King of England, gathered Mohawk warriors, and burned the houses and crops of the Oneida in the same way the Americans had done to the Mohawk. This divided the Haudenosaunee in ways they had never been divided before. While in the past, Haudenosaunee would find themselves on different sides of European wars, it was common practice that if they encountered each other, they would never attack the other nation. But Brant's attack on the Oneida signified the first coordinated Haudenosaunee attack on another Haudenosaunee nation. It wasn't long until the Oneida and the Tuscarora joined the American side. This split officially broke the alliance and pitted the six nations against each other for the first time in centuries. Chapter 2, Part 2, Total Destruction and Devastation Christianity did not just influence the British-aligned Haudenosaunee like Joseph Brandt, it also influenced the other side. One reason cited for the United Nations' decision to remain neutral and ultimately join the Americans was the Presbyterian missionary Samuel Kirkland who started Hamilton College not far from what is today Oneida, New York. He was a white man willing to live amongst the natives far from the cities that clung to the East Coast, building friendships and schools with the Oneida. Kirkland may be a major factor on why the Oneida had a strong working relationship with the colonists already, but his full influence will never be known. 
Although the six nations eventually reunited, this division among ancient allies had permanently weakened the Haudenosaunee culture and allowed for Christianity to hug in ever closer. The allegiance of the Oneida and Tuscarora nations were crucial for Americans who depended heavily on the famed Oneida scouts to help win the revolution. During the war, General George Washington decided that the four nations that did not join them, the Mohawk, Onondaga, Cayuga, and the Seneca, needed to be punished for the actions they took against the colonists as part of the war. Washington asked a variety of generals to lead this punitive trip into the heart of Haudenosaunee land. But many declined, until he finally reached Major General John Sullivan, a man who had been passed up on previous promotions and was eager to increase his recognition in the war. Washington ordered the, quote, total destruction and devastation of the hostile native villages with a specific focus on their crops, of which the British were also dependent on just as much as the men, women, and children of the four Haudenosaunee nations allied with them. Washington's directive was to employ the scorched earth method of burning and pillaging everything in its path. Washington encouraged the capture of as many prisoners as possible and to repeat this in every village they encountered until the Haudenosaunee were forced to negotiate. And even then, Washington demanded that only the harshest terms would suffice in order for the Americans to stop their carnage, the capture and surrender of Britain's most powerful generals. For those Haudenosaunee who wanted to stop the carnage, this would have been a near-suicide mission. Sullivan coordinated with two other generals to attack at the heart of the British-allied Haudenosaunee land with the ultimate goal of defeating the British at Fort Niagara, at the mouth of the Niagara River. The Sullivan Expedition of 1779, as it has since been labeled, is one of the darkest, and least spoken about chapters of the American Revolution. An argument can be made that during times of war, drastic measures need to be taken. But the Sullivan Expedition falls along the more extreme end of historical drastic measures. The name Expedition implies a largely non-violent exploration party like that of Lewis and Clark. But the reality was much darker than that. 5,000 men, one-third of the entire Continental Army, were going in to systematically destroy a way of life that had existed for centuries. As Sullivan marched into Haudenosaunee land, entire villages, some the size of small cities, were destroyed. The Seneca and Cayuga nations fled before them with almost no possessions, never to see their homes again. Sullivan would enter a village and burn all of the longhouses, all of the crops, and any sign of Haudenosaunee at all. Haudenosaunee villages were sophisticated and could grow quite large. Single orchards that held as many as 1,500 trees and endless fields of corn 
They kept their towns protected with palisaded walls, and by the late 18th century, the Haudenosaunee made quite elaborate longhouses, which held multiple families each. One historian mentions an account of Sullivan marching into the abandoned town of Chequaga. Quote, it contained about 40 well-built houses, some of framed timbers with glazed windows and chimneys. This was burned and the crops destroyed. End quote. This replayed itself in town after town Sullivan came to. The flood of native refugees flowing just ahead of the American-led wave of destruction ensured starvation for the coming winter. Sullivan strategically arrived directly before peak harvest season on purpose. But by choosing the path of maximum famine for his enemies, Sullivan was still 100 miles away from the final destination of Fort Niagara as winter began to approach. Having just lost the scouting party that was mercilessly tortured and killed, and a supporting general whose whereabouts remained unknown, Sullivan decided to turn around just before the beginning of one of western New York's most terrible winters. Sullivan reversed course and headed back to the American-controlled Pennsylvania. While Fort Niagara was never taken, Sullivan accomplished one of Washington's stated objectives by destroying all traces of the local Haudenosaunee. As the colonists closed in on winning the Revolutionary War, Sullivan had thanklessly opened up thousands of acres of land for the new United States of America. Despite Sullivan having been involved in nearly every major battle of the Revolutionary War, his country never truly embraced him. He doesn't accomplish the level of fame reached by Washington, De Lafayette, or even Benedict Arnold. To the United States, Sullivan's expedition, along with the rest of the American Indian Wars, represented a side of the country that is often avoided by both the government and its citizens. Like the Mexican-American War, or the realities of slavery, Americans don't like to identify with the times the country has blatantly taken from others at the cost of blood. Therefore, Sullivan has never been fully embraced for his hard work and sacrifices for the revolution because the slaughter of the Haudenosaunee at the direction of George Washington will always be his legacy. In American schools, it's Sherman's march to the sea during the Civil War that gets admonished as a new and destructive war tactic, despite being 80 years after Sullivan's own march. But the Sullivan expedition is barely mentioned in revolutionary history, if at all. The reality was neither Sullivan nor the Haudenosaunee were thought about all too much as the newly minted citizens of the United States started to move in to the New York frontier. Some looked for a new home, starting their own communities upon the ashes of centuries of Haudenosaunee history. Others bought up huge chunks in giant land speculation schemes. As Christians used a myriad of unchristian methods to wrest further lands from the Haudenosaunee, they justified their actions through dehumanizing the Haudenosaunee while glorifying their own beliefs. Ultimately, anyone who could be swayed with the might-makes-right argument 
could easily justify unchristian actions as a necessary evil to advance a necessary good. But in many ways, the Haudenosaunee resembled the myriad tribes that once spanned the length and breadth of Europe, who lived close to nature, like the Gauls, the Britons, or other Celtic tribes. They were occasionally migratory with loosely defined boundaries between them, like many of the Native American land beliefs. But then, the more contemporary nation-states of Europe subdued them or co-opted them as Christians, often by incorporating aspects of their pagan beliefs into Christianity. The European continent had strangled their own native tribes from existence, replacing it wholesale with Christ and conquest. The nation-state, with its personal detachment, made breaking agreements with native peoples easier. Nation-states were generally more centralized, and there were higher rewards for individuals who proved essential to it. After the European tribes were all gone, the nation-states of Europe looked outward towards other tribal people in Africa and America. They would consume the Haudenosaunee as they did their own native tribes. But the beliefs of the Haudenosaunee hallowed the grounds of this enchanted land long after it was taken from them. Christians naively entered these ancient lands and saw it anew, raw, untouched, and virgin wilderness given to them by God, while the blood of the Haudenosaunee was still wet beneath their feet. Was it Christian to destroy non-Christians and their beliefs? Was this a violation of loving thy neighbor? What responsibility should Christians play in the aftermath of something as traumatic as the Sullivan Expedition? And what is the role of God in his secularly devised nation-state that committed such atrocities? These questions are rarely asked, let alone answered. But it did not matter much to the new citizens that were now streaming into the wilderness that was once holding the Shoni land and starting anew. And one of the earliest Christian leaders of the time who did this was known as the Public Universal Friend. Chapter 2, Part 3, The Friend In 1788, a group of 260 people had finally reached the overgrown ruins of Haudenosaunee lands led by ex-soldiers of the Sullivan Expedition that had taken place only the decade prior. They weren't the first to trek west for new land in the reaches of the New York frontier, but this group was unusual. They were following a religious prophet into the wilderness because they believed in her vision. They were in search of the Finger Lakes. The men from the Sullivan Expedition remembered the beauty and the value of the land that they had taken from the Iroquois and now wished to show it to their prophet, known as the Public Universal Friend, or just Friend for short. Together, they would build a utopia in the wilderness where they would mill, hunt, and farm under the leadership of the friend. They decided to settle only 25 miles from the ruins of Chicago, 
the large, elaborate Haudenosaunee settlement destroyed during the expedition and in the midst of being reclaimed by nature by the time of the friend's arrival. The Revolutionary War changed the colonists' perspectives in ways that may be difficult to imagine today. Perhaps it's somewhat similar to the sense of freedom in the young internet, as it was a space where anything seemed possible. After the war, rejecting the rule of authority became popular and even celebrated. The United States of America didn't have to follow the establishment norms from Europe that often didn't make sense to them anymore. With the deposal of the British monarchy, suddenly it became possible in everyone's mind that other types of authority could be rejected too, like class differences, religious norms, and gender roles. Even the Founding Fathers recognized that they may have unleashed a form of democracy that could not be controlled. The public universal friend embodied all that flew in the face of the old colonial order. The friend was born a daughter of Rhode Island Quakers and was named Jemima Wilkinson, but she would not keep this name after a traumatic event. As a young woman, she suffered from typhus and came down with such a powerful fever that her family thought that she was going to die. But when the fever broke and her family could finally breathe a sigh of relief, Jemima Wilkinson announced that she had actually died during her illness and was replaced by the Holy Spirit. No longer would she go by Jemima, but instead she would be addressed as the public universal friend. Rather than finding her mad, her family was inspired by her and quickly converted to her teachings before long, so did many others. Together, they created the Society of Universal Friends. The friend is considered the first American woman to be deemed a prophet, but is also hailed by the modern transgender community as the first American transgender evangelist. The friend refused gender-specific pronouns, and the Society of Universal Friends respected that wish. But the friend's reason for this was because they declared that the Holy Spirit had no gender, and so therefore the friend, embodied by the Holy Spirit, had no gender as well. The LGBTQ community have found the friend's story inspiring for transgender individuals who practice an organized religion, as a precedent of an early American leader on gender equality and fluidity. The friend promoted greater equality in both race and gender, preached celibacy and of avoiding lust, and discouraged marriage. But the friend was unusual for being a woman who identified as a spiritual being without a gender, which separates the friend from more modern gender issues today. The friend finally had enough followers that they had ex-soldiers of the Sullivan Expedition lead the congregation into the New York wilderness to the ruins of Chicago. The friend preached mostly a combination of Quakerism and Evangelicalism, well-accepted beliefs for the time that many Christian settlers would find familiar and even comforting. From the beginning, 
the Society of Universal Friends truly tested what it meant to be free in the new America. The friend turned out to be an exceptional leader for the society, and together they created the town of Jerusalem, New York, which still exists to this day. The Society of Universal Friends traded with some Haudenosaunee while fighting off attacks from others, who were vainly trying to recapture their land before it was lost forever. They staved off starvation when food was scarce, and dealt with government land battles. Jerusalem was built with the vision of being a more equal, honest, and hard-working utopia on the frontier, so the disciples of the friend could escape the sinful world of the cities back east, where many had lost loved ones during the revolution. The public universal friend was a rejection of the old order and embodied the hope of a new, more equitable society that was governed by the friend's principles and not the American government. But unlike the Haudenosaunee, they did not understand the forces that they were up against as their utopia was not to last. The Society of Universal Friends existed until just after the Friend's death in 1819. Without the leadership of the Friend, the Disciples disbanded, finding that the only thing that unified them after all these years wasn't the beliefs of a divine Holy Spirit, but instead this unusual and mysterious charismatic leader. Chapter 2, Part 4, Cheating the Defeated Upstate New York was rife with land speculation from a variety of investors from all around the world, looking to make a quick profit on the cheap land that was taken from the Haudenosaunee during the Revolution. A group of Protestant Dutch speculators started the Holland Land Company and purchased over 3 million acres of captured Seneca land in the westernmost part of the state. But settlers were slow in coming due to its lack of infrastructure and potential hostilities from the natives. Small groups like the Society of Universal Friends that made their way to the New York frontier were the exception rather than the rule. So the Holland Land Company doubled down by pouring money into surveying the land, building roads, and lobbying for the construction of the Erie Canal. But the biggest issue for the speculators was how to by the remaining substantial tracts of land still held by the Haudenosaunee. The Haudenosaunee still controlled the majority of the New York frontier and had no intentions in selling it to the Christian land speculators. So, instead of buying the land from the Haudenosaunee, they bought the exclusive right to buy it when the Haudenosaunee did try and sell it. This ensured that there would be no price competition among the buyers so that the profit to the Haudenosaunee would be criminally low. 
With so much pressure to sell, the Haudenosaunee met with negotiators of the United States in Canandaigua, New York in 1794 to discuss terms and form a treaty between the two sovereign nations. The result was the Great Canandaigua Treaty, which is still binding to this day. The negotiations brought in interested parties from all across the land, and while in the process of deliberating the treaty, one of the biggest events of its kind, the public universal friend made an appearance, as described in the history of Jemima Wilkinson, a preacheress of the 18th century. And here's a quote from it. When the treaty was held with the Indians at Canadagua, she repaired thither, and while the commissioners and their assistants were engaged with the sachems and the warriors in deep consultations, she suddenly entered the council hall, and, without any previous notice or introduction, commenced praying most vehemently. The abrupt entrance of Jemima and the temporary suspension of business gave great umbrage to the Indians who testified their impatience and dissatisfaction by sneers, frowns, and grimaces. Her presence was therefore exceedingly offensive to them all. Having ended her long prayer, or rather harangue, she attentively surveyed her auditors in order to discover what effect it had produced upon them but her mortification was equal to her disappointment on finding that the moment she had ceased speaking, the assembly resumed their business without taking the least notice of her company. The friend used an increasingly popular tactic by Christians in the New York frontier in the hopes of gaining their attention, an emotional appeal. But, the officials from both parties were too stoic to take this fit of passion for God seriously and ignored the friend with good cause. Insensitive to the Haudenosaunee culture, the friend made quite a fool of themselves in front of the entire delegation. The book continues with other stories of how the public universal friend attempted to convert the Haudenosaunee to Christianity. It relays the anecdote of a group of Oneida who were encamped near Jerusalem, and the friend went to them claiming to be Jesus Christ. After the friend spoke, an Oneida man responded in his Iroquois tongue, while the public universal friend eagerly waited for the translation and asked the man what he had said. Then the Oneida said in broken English that the friend couldn't be Jesus Christ if they didn't know what he said, because Christ is all-knowing. The book directly suggests that Jemima Wilkinson was motivated by land speculation, just like the Holland Land Office and all of the rest, hoping to gain it by earning the trust of the Haudenosaunee as their savior and would then be gifted with their land. If this was the friend's true motivation, Wilkinson was ultimately unsuccessful. Most of the land in the western New York frontier was Seneca, which had grown to be the most powerful nation of the Haudenosaunee Alliance leading up to the Revolutionary War. In 1797, under the Treaty of Big Tree, the Seneca relinquished nearly three million acres of their traditional homeland and were forced onto ten separate reservations across the region. But this still wasn't enough for the Christian Euro-American juggernaut. 
Already in other parts of New York, members of the Six Nations had agreed to move on to reservations in far-flung places across the American West, out of the state entirely. And when the powerful Ogden family from New Jersey purchased 200,000 acres of land from the Holland Land Company and found a Seneca reservation land within their borders, they decided to continue to put the pressure on them to take it all for themselves. They used their power and influence to further remove the Seneca from land that the Treaty of Big Tree deemed Seneca land forever. The history of the Ogdens is notable. They were a family that descended directly from the Puritan separatists, which were persecuted by the Anglican government of England and forced to the New World as the famed pilgrims. During the American Revolution in the 1700s, the Ogden family split between the British and the Americans, but those who were patriots found themselves in the company of some powerful allies, including George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and other state and federal-level friends. In 1810, David Ogden started the Ogden Land Company and purchased the aforementioned 200,000 acres from the Holland Land Company. And with varying degrees of success, the Ogdens lobbied the federal government to remove the Seneca from the land given to them by the Treaty of Big Tree. But the power of the government was weak out in the New York frontier, and so the Ogdens and their allies ultimately took to forcing the Seneca from their own land themselves. The Seneca, now divided across ten separate reservations, had lost their solidarity, and the Ogdens played them against each other based on the needs and interests of each reservation. Today, one of the Seneca reservations, the Tonawanda Reservation, refuses to be part of the greater Seneca Nation due to the other reservations trying to sell their land from under them to the Ogdens. Agents from the Ogden Land Company paid off some of the chiefs, used native allies, gave gifts of alcohol, and threatened to get their way. But the truth was, they had no legal rights to the land or ability to negotiate treaties. A pair of fraudulent treaties drawn up in 1823 and 1826 were at first ignored, but when no government action was taken to protect the Seneca, the false treaties were able to stand unchallenged in court until the 1890s, 70 years later. The Ogden Land Company continued to do whatever was necessary to acquire more counterfeit treaties. In 1838, the Ogden Land Company set out to force more Seneca off their own land in an attempt to resettle them to Kansas by any means necessary. In The History of the Genesee Country, it states, quote, The Seneca chiefs were besieged night and day, bribed and plied with liquor, but the consent of a majority to this infamous pact could not be obtained. At length, the Ogden Land Company was reduced to the necessity of taking debauched Indians to Buffalo and sequestering them in a tavern, where they were declared elected chiefs by company agents, and then forced to sign the treaty drawn up by the land commissioners and known as the Buffalo Creek Treaty of 1838, end quote. 
From there, this audacious pretense of a treaty was rushed to Washington and even confirmed by the Senate. So, was this the less corrupt world that the Puritans of Ogden's ancestors imagined when they came to America? Was this the manifest destiny of God's will playing out through good Christian practices? But of course, there were many Christian settlers of western New York that did not just blindly support the dubious efforts of the Ogden Land Company. The Quakers and the Calvinist-influenced American board missionary at Buffalo Creek vigorously protested and petitioned for decades against the abuses towards the Seneca Nation by both the government and the company. An amended treaty in 1842 offered slight restitution, and in 1856, some of the Seneca Nation were allowed to buy back part of their land from the Ogden Land Company for a hundred times what they were paid for it, even though they never agreed to sell it to begin with, and only because they refused to leave the land anyway. The Seneca recognized the Quaker support they received and today still invite the descendants of the Quakers who helped their cause when recognizing the legitimate Treaty of Canandaigua every year in November. Despite the support from some local Christian people, the Seneca ultimately saw the actions taken against them by the Ogden Land Company as actions of a greater Christian nation working against them. For many of the Seneca, as well as the greater Native American population, it did not matter what localized Christian efforts were taken to support them when the greater state and federal governments, whose members almost unanimously claimed to be moral Christians, actively worked to destroy their nation and culture. To this day, the Seneca still battle with the government over the autonomy and identity of lands that were stripped from them. The religion worshipped by the Haudenosaunee was a real and genuine interpretation of nature and the universe. But, as the white people continued to encroach on their land, they were bombarded by every Christian denomination from Catholic Jesuits to the public universal friend looking to convert them, take their land, or both. In 1805, the Seneca leader Red Jacket famously criticized Christianity when a group of missionaries asked to proselytize in the Haudenosaunee settlements in the area. The points he raised in his 1805 speech are still valid to this day, and because they're so good, I'm going to quote extensively from Red Jacket here. So here we go. Quote, Brother, continue to listen. You say you are sent to instruct us how to worship the Great Spirit agreeably to his mind, and if we do not take hold of the religion which you white people teach, we shall be unhappy hereafter. You say that you are right, and we are lost. How do we know this to be true? We understand that your religion is written in a book. If it was intended for us as well as you, why has not the Great Spirit given it to us, and not only to us, but why did he not give it to our forefathers the knowledge of that book, with the means of understanding it rightly? We only know what you tell us about it. 
How shall we know when to believe, being so often deceived by the white people? Brother, you say there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree, as you can all read the book? Brother, we do not wish to destroy your religion, or take it from you. We only want to enjoy our own. Brother, you say you have not come to get our land or our money, but to enlighten our minds. I will tell you now that I have been at your meetings and saw you collecting money from the meeting. I cannot tell what this money was intended for, but suppose it was for your minister. And if we should conform to your way of thinking, perhaps you may want some from us. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has, then consider again what you have said. End quote. Red Jacket struggled with the inundation of Christianity to the Seneca nation, even to his death. But in this speech, he gets to the root of some brilliant fundamental questions about religion. He questions the authority of the missionaries in the same way that Protestant Reformation questioned the Catholic Church's authority. He openly wonders why it is that the Haudenosaunee were never given the word of Jesus through God like the white people claimed happened to them. The uncomfortable reality is that many Christians to this day would answer the question by calling them an unchosen people, left to live and die in darkness, and that they were actually lucky to be receiving the word of God through these missionaries. But this is rarely said directly from Christian to non-Christian, as it is not typically well-received particularly when Red Jacket reminds these missionaries that deception from Christian white people was commonplace for them, a fact that had been historically documented time and time again. Many Christian white people went as far as to justify their deceit by seeing the natives as godless savages, and to this day this viewpoint is still easily found within Christian belief. Red Jacket then calls out the Christian prism, the wide variety of interpretations that cannot even be agreed upon amongst each other. If they really have one divine truth, why are there so many conflicting interpretations? Red Jacket rightly recognizes that Christians were attempting to eradicate any other way of worshiping while simultaneously conflicting with each other, never actually unifying under one belief. He subtly questions their motives about ambitions of the land and money, the very sort of deceit that drove most interactions with the Haudenosaunee. And before declining the missionary's entrance on the Haudenosaunee land, he gracefully tells them he wants to see what the effects of their proselytizing has on their white neighbors, the very ones who have been cheating them out of land and money. And if the teachings of Christ change their behavior, then they will consider conversion themselves, a sort of final tongue-in-cheek dig. As implied by Red Jacket's speech, 
there would be no change in behavior from these white neighbors. Even George Washington lamented the plight of the Indians, stating, I believe scarcely any such thing short of a Chinese wall or a line of troops will restrain land jobbers and the encroachment of settlers upon the Indian territory. Although the federal government run by Washington was weak, he did attempt to assist the Indians by clarifying boundary lines. But Washington knew that without enforcement, the, quote, land jobbers would continue to take more. So in 1817, $7 million, which would be over $100 million today, was passed by the New York State Legislature to dig a canal that would cross the state from the Hudson River to Lake Erie. The project, pushed for by Governor Clinton, was highly controversial on whether it could be done or even be successful. Clinton realized that a waterway that could connect the East Coast to the Great Lakes while bypassing the mighty Niagara Falls would make New York the gateway to the West, which was quickly being settled by Americans and immigrants alike. And when the Erie Canal was completed in 1825, a gateway it was creating America's first boom towns along the waterline, which included the cities of Utica, Syracuse, Rochester, and Buffalo. The central and western portions of New York were still considered frontier land in the early 19th century and consisted of the vast swaths of glacial lakes, arable land, and tree-capped mountains. With the Seneca decimated and deceived, all that was left for the land companies to do was to wait for Americans to come and buy the land from them. The stage for a new American vision had been set. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and 
you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.